This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. The Federal Reserve finished up their latest open market committee meeting. The expectation was this time, as it has been for quite some time, that the central bank had as good a shot as any to raise interest rates just slightly. That didn't happen, as the Fed cited the up-and-down nature of the markets the last couple of weeks and the overseas issues as why they did not issue a rate hike. So if not now, then when? We welcome back Peter Conti-Brown, Assistant Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics here at the Wharton School. Great to see you again. Thanks for coming in. I'm glad to be here. Uh, were you expecting it just like a lot of people were? I wasn't, and I okay. wasn't because of what we had seen in August, both in terms of the markets, uh, but much more so because of some of the signals we were getting from members of the FOMC okay. uh, and their hesitations. You know, it's interesting that, that Chair Yellen cites the, the market turmoil, which is largely in international markets, not in the U.S. markets, yep. and then expressly noted uh, the, uh, the, the, for, the, the currency uh, elements that's relatively rare. We haven't seen comments exactly like that in about 20 years since mm-hmm. Alan Greenspan. Um, so it's normally the answer is, and Yellen in the in the press conference went in this direction too. The answer is we are making this change. We are not making this change because we read our dual mandate to promote price stability, meaning mm-hmm. stable inflation, uh, and maximum employment. Here we got something different. That was a little surprising. So that angle of a global view, uh, it's not a change for the Fed, but maybe actually saying it, it is a little bit different. It's uh, it's really it's that's the that's the thing. I mean, the Federal Reserve, founded in 1913, was founded explicitly as an international-facing. Uh, banking system and, and central banking system. Uh, its raison d'etre was to avoid international financial panics. The 1907 panic was an international one. Um, and uh, the main justification, the new functions that the Fed had, were to make uh, the United States a bigger player in international markets. And that has never changed. That's always been the case. The Fed is always cognizant of uh, and reactive to the international climate. So some people who say, oh, they should stick to their knitting mm-hmm. and pay attention to the U.S. economy, uh, that's, an, that's an impossibility. Uh, so so that, that part of it is not new. So at this point, when you sit here and we've gone all these different FOMC meetings and nothing has happened, are, are you of the viewpoint of, I'll believe it when I see it? Well, here's the thing that's so interesting and difficult about this. I mean, the the, the Fed has essentially announced two inconsist- inconsistent mantras. One mantra is we just stick to the data. We're doing what the data will tell us to do. And the other is we need to maintain flexibility and we don't have any precise metrics to offer you. Mm-hmm. In other words, the data that we have, although the Fed devotes extraordinary resources to, to creating their own their own data, the data that the market has too, right? The market is aware of these kinds of trends. Sure. Um, and so saying we're just going to stick to the data suggests, well, this is something that a computer could do for us. And if that computer is located at the Board of Governors in Washington, D.C., or if it's sure. located at Goldman Sachs in New York City, it's going to say the same thing. But again, that's where the second point comes in. It's like, well, we're not going to tell you exactly what our metrics are. And so it makes it very difficult to say uh, when things are going to happen. And here's what makes me 
skeptical even that the, the hike is going to come in October or December, and that is that inflation is stuck stubbornly yeah. at just above 0%. Something that Cherry Yellen said in the press conference is really intriguing is that the 2% inflation target is not a ceiling. Yeah. Right? That means that it... It sure as heck isn't a floor, right? Because if that's the case, then we have fallen into a very deep basement. So the idea that, okay, we're going to raise interest rates uh, when inflation gets to 2% or something like that. uh, Might be a very long time. It it, it could still be a long time. Recall that Chair Chair Bernanke was talking about liftoff in 2010. That was five years ago. But we haven't seen, as you said, any push on, on inflation to really tip even close to 1%. At this point. So and I guess at this point, uh, does the Fed not want to change its viewpoint on bringing that that level down from two percent down to one percent? Yeah, they they don't want to. Two percent is a even even that some economists have debated is is artificially low, that they should be targeting uh, a much higher interest rate. And that indeed it was a mistake to to leave their other unconventional monetary policy tools behind as they have done here. I'm yeah. talking about quantitative easing, which has ended uh, their, the, the Fed's expen- extensive bond buying program in the mortgage-backed securities markets. Now, that's over. Some economists think they ended too soon. Look at inflation. It's sure. too low. Yeah. We're talking with Peter Conti Brown of the Wharton School. We're talking about the Federal Reserve not making any move on uh, interest rates yesterday. Your comments are welcome if you'd like to join in as well. The number is 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. So for the average consumer out there, uh, what do they? What should they take from this latest statement from the Federal Reserve as they're, you know, out there in in the community? Because there are people that obviously are still thinking about their mortgages that uh, they may want to refinance, or they may be thinking about people that want to be buying a new home, or you know, obviously a factor in this is, is the jobs because the last month job creation was a little bit lower than than we had seen the last couple of months. There's a variety of different factors that are all kind of at play here. Yeah, I think that, I mean, from the consumer perspective, uh, which which we usually think of as a borrower's perspective, so people who are thinking about financing student loans or especially mortgages, um, then this is this is a this is a good announcement. This is the time to refinance mortgages. They just saved thousands of dollars on uh, on potentially even even tiny uh, market movements. So that's been prolonged. Um, And it's interesting, the metaphor that you used earlier, you know, they took us to the trough and then took it away, I think works really well for market uh, observers like you and me. But for consumers, what they did is kept the trough there. That's they said, true. drink up as much as That's you can. True, we yeah. were thinking about taking it away, but yeah. but keep on going. When you talk about an interest rate increase, at some point it will happen. And whether it is, you know, 15 basis points, quarter point, whatever it may end up being. For the consumer, what does that translate to the change in in the rates that they will see in mortgages coming up. So the it's it's not a perfect translation. Yep. So a quarter uh, you know quarter percentage point, as they say, twenty five basis point increase in the federal funds rate uh, isn't going to be exactly, but it's going to be close. So yep. you'll see when you're you're talking about you know long term. Uh, 30 year fixed mortgage rates on good credit, you'll see changes that should shift, you know, from 3.5% to 3.75 or from sure. 4.25 to 4.5, more or less. So that uh, the real game of interest rates, though, is a comparative one. So okay. 4% compared to what? And the main comparisons that we're looking at are one, compared to inflation, 
sure. a 4% nominal interest rate when we've got 5% inflation is actually uh, upside down. Uh, so that's the first comparison. And the second is, well, compared to what else I can get elsewhere in the marketplace. And I think that's the thing that has a lot of, of bond traders and, and, uh, and corporations and others feeling very skittish, very antsy about this decision, because uh-huh. once the Fed moves, then the other dynamics that are not going to be shifting so evenly, uh, you know, Chinese markets, Brazilian markets, that kind of thing, uh, will react and they'll react unpredictably. Peter Connie Brown joins us from the Wharton School. We're talking about the uh, Federal Reserve. Uh, your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get to your phone, you can send me a question via Twitter. We'll bring it up on the show, at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. With what we've seen with the U.S. economy and all the data over the last you know several months, is there something, Janet Yellen obviously focused on the global view, but is there something still that she finds concerning that the other Fed presidents find concerning about the U.S. economy? You mentioned the inflation rate being slow, but outside of that, I mean, the jobs numbers have been pretty solid for the last year, year and a half for the most part. Yeah. Is there something else that w- that maybe they're reading in the tea leaves that we're not able to see? Uh, I think absolutely. And I think the problem is is that while it's true that the um, we've been out of a recession for a very long time, and this is one of, in the 20th century, this is one of the longest uh, periods of, of economic growth that we've seen, it seems to be still a very fragile recovery, and fragile in, in two senses that are, are directly relevant to the way the Fed is thinking about this. First is, there's a still an extraordinary amount of debt overhang among consumers. Yeah. And by that, that just means just a lot of debt. People are still in a lot of debt. And this is especially true for those who bought homes in the couple years leading up to 2008. Uh, they saw extraordinary amounts of their wealth in home equity just wiped out. Yep. And many of these people are upside down, but still paying their mortgages. They haven't defaulted. Well, what does that mean? That means they're not spending very much. Yep. That means they're trying to make up for their lost nest eggs by saving more, or they're just completely cash-strapped. So the fact that we see as much debt in the system even now should give us some alarm about potential for a future financial crisis, which are almost always debt-driven. And then, but also should give us a sense, and give central bankers a sense that this recovery is is far from from cemented. So then, a, a an increase then with all of those factors put in, and, and as you said, I mean, this is still a very tough time for consumers. I think consumers just, I think they are waiting for the mm-hmm. the next shoe to drop in this case, and 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 I think they still feel very uh, uneasy at times. You know, going out and making that extra purchase that that they that they probably wouldn't have, you know, right after the recession. Obviously, the auto industry is certainly doing pretty well, but those are purchases that people need to make, mm-hmm. you know, from time to time. Yeah, and we can overstate. I mean, we're not in recession. Uh, it's a great place to be economically if you're someone who's uh, got a low debt load, or or even better, a no debt load, and you're interested in in making big purchases like. Uh, you know, coming to Wharton and getting an MBA or buying a house or, or, or doing something like that. It's a great, great time to be a consumer. Problem is, is that those uh, uh, those people who are still carrying this legacy debt from the early 2000s or the mid-2000s um, are, are not seeing it. What recovery? Who's recovery? Uh, that's and that's something that is causing, I think, central bankers uh, to pause on this, this un, you know, uh, unprecedented uh, period in monetary policy. The last couple of years, in, in terms of uh, to switch the subject a little bit, uh, in terms of the GDP, one we have seen uh, pretty 
pretty strong growth the the second half of the year. The numbers have been been pretty good. Some of the reports, though, I'm seeing out there that that there's not as much optimism maybe this year that the potential of seeing a, a three or three and a half percent growth in the second half of the year is there. We saw it in the second quarter, but that was a bounce back mm-hmm. from from the winter. Well, how do you see it playing out? Uh, it's just it's so difficult, and it depends so much on on uh, a variety of factors. Not not. Uh, uh, you know, among them, most importantly, was what the Fed will do. Yeah. Um, and uh, and the other factors are too. You know, what's going on with Canada, our largest trading partner, um, that is not in uh, in a great place economically. Brazil in uh, not a great place economically with potential inflation uh, that's uh, that's threatening to take off. We're seeing what's happening in China. Where does that? And does it does it is it truly just a, a markdown on their uh, extraordinary growth projections, or yeah. is it significantly worse? Uh, and I think that's the thing that that should give give everyone in the United States and in the in, uh, involved in these in these markets the sense that we just cannot stand alone in the world. We're so deeply sure. but unevenly integrated in a global economic and financial system that what happens in China does directly affect what happens here. Yeah, and that was one of the things I wanted to bring up is because we've all I've done the stories here on, on this show and a variety of shows about how that, that growth that China has been seeing, which was you know in the double digits, you know, a, a year or so ago, but even though it's down at seven or, you know, however those metrics are, are concerned, there's still worry about, you know, what exactly those levels of growth are in China. And then the other factor that throws in, is, a lot of people talk about, is obviously the stronger U.S. dollar and the effect that that is having on, on trading around the globe right now. Right. Right. And that's that. I mean, those are exactly exactly the issues. The United States is fortunate it's in a place that, where China very much wants to be, where, you know, our, our exports are, are hugely important. They're, they're job creators for sure. But that's not the main game. The U.S. economy is just a, a behemoth and it's uh, we consume much of what we produce uh, here. And uh, and so the what's happening out in the world? I mean, it's not we're not hanging on by our fingernails. We're not so dependent on what's going on in Canada or China or Brazil. Sure. But that doesn't mean it doesn't influence us. But one of the things, actually, an interesting story that I saw the other day, uh, actually talked about you know something that really has has been under the radar is the employment picture over in Europe. And there was a story the other day about how Spain's unemployment has made decent strides over the last couple of months and as decent strides go for spain that's going from 25 percent unemployment to 22 percent unemployment which is you know you think about that here and you just you're you want to hide under the table but still those types of stories and seeing that kind of change in europe will have an effect will have a benefit down the road oh sure but i mean uh, that's great depression level unemployment in spain and in greece and uh, in Portugal is doing a little bit better. And that's part of the problem. You know, we haven't talked about Europe. That's a huge factor to consider. Uh, the, the, the ECB is in, uh, still as the Fed is, uh, in a very accommodative monetary yep. policy stance. Yep. And uh, it doesn't look like there's a, an end in sight there. And part of that is, again, just the roiling of what it means to have a monetary union without a fiscal union yeah. in Europe. And so these are all factors that... that uh, the central bankers inside the Federal Reserve are looking at when they gather for their meetings. They see that it is never in in U.S. history have we had a period of zero percent interest rate uh, rates 
anything like the amount of time that we've had them. So there's the sense we must return to normalcy, must yeah. be back to conventional monetary policy. But how can you make that decision when inflation is zero percent? Unemployment, which is low enough, it's hitting the target, but is so fragile given debt overhang, yeah. uh, given lo uh, uh, long-term unemployment, which is uh, uh, recorded separately, and given this international context where we see just any any slip in, in yeah. one of these major economies could have all kinds of devastating consequences for the U.S. It almost seems like we're at the point where just on the infl inflation issue alone that the Federal Reserve would like to see any kind of bump in inflation for a fairly significant period of time now, mm -hmm. you know, a, a, as a factor because of the fact that, you know, they've they've kept interest rates uh, so low for so long and inflation just hasn't been able to to move the needle at all. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, this is the trick of of central banking and uh, why it's such a, a, a complicated endeavor. You know, William McChesney Martin, who was the the chair of the Federal Reserve System uh, from uh, from in the 1950s and 60s, said the job of the central banker is to lean against the wind, whichever way the wind is blowing, <laughs> and uh, and that's what they're trying to do here. If you wait until we see two percent inflation, then yeah. you are facing a a, a galloping a currency that may not be able to be restrained. You can't wait to see the target before you act. You're reading the data, but you're also give, refracting that data through yep. your own sense of values and judgment and trying to play a guessing game that the entire world, the market participants the entire world over are also playing. From a historical perspective, though, as you said, with the with the interest rates, this is, you know, really unheard of before. But when we think about the global economy, just in general, I mean, this is very unique for this as well, to see this kind of, of path all across the globe, or in many portions of the globe. Yeah. That's right. I mean, international um, international financial history is fascinating in the sense that because we've been globalizing for a very long time, hundreds of years, and in each generation can say, we have never been more global than we are today. Yeah. And we can also say that. It's also true, and next generation will also be true. I mean, there are there are yeah. several billion people who are not on the, in, in participating in the global financial system and the global economy uh, in any serious way. So we're not a fully globalized system, but we've never seen anything like what we are today. Uh, and, that's, uh, and that's something that the, the Fed has to navigate. Is there a, I mean, I, I, it doesn't seem like there's a, a formula right now to, to really be able to affect change to get inflation, you know, bumped up in any way, shape or form at this point, because things have been tried and, and it just haven't, haven't worked. So this is, this is part of the trick. I mean, there's um, the, what the, what the Fed's critics would say is this, you know, they're, the, the Fed's practice of keeping the interest rates at zero and engaging in all these bond buying programs, the so-called quantitative easing, has been extraordinarily inflationary, that they are about to unleash uh, uh, an inflation tidal wave on the economy. Yeah. And the reason we haven't seen it is because they're engaged in this other practice, which is paying interest on excess reserves in the banking system. Mm -hmm. This stuff gets pretty technical pretty quickly. But the basic idea is that the Fed is paying banks to keep, uh, uh, you know, over, uh, I think the number is just under $2 trillion in the Federal Reserve banks are paying interest on that. Normally they wouldn't. Yeah. Um, and so you've got, you've got uh, attention here pulling in different directions. And so Jan Janet Yellen was asked this yesterday in yesterday's press conference, well, how do you unwind that? And that is a question that has no answer at this point. It's never been done. This is not something that we've ever seen before. If you unwind it by just unleashing it, then yes, you see, you'd see the economy yeah. explode in inflation. And that's, I think, what uh, what 
the Fed's critics are saying, we're not seeing enough inflation because uh, you've got you're holding back on all of these excess reserves. And so how do you how do you get that out out from under that two trillion dollar uh, gorilla? Yeah. And uh, is is the question, and that's the question they're going to have to try to answer. How do you view the, the the job that Janet Yellen has been able to do up until this point? Because I I see it, and, and I get a little bit of a sense that there obviously are many more things that she would like to be able to do, but in some respects she's been hamstrung by all the things we've been talking about for the last twenty minutes or yeah. so. That there's probably a lot of things that that she probably has on her plate that she can't get to at this yeah. point. I'm I'm extremely impressed by Janet Yellen. She is the single most qualified central banker that we've ever had in the chair. Yeah. Um, she is, she's been a governor on the federal reserve board. She's been uh, the vice chair of the same board on different tours of duty. She's been the president of a federal reserve bank. She's been an academic. She's also been an advisor to presidents. So it's, um, she, she came with a, a bulletproof resume and, uh, and she, she's just an expert. So uh, she's very good at this. The problem, the problem with central banking and the view that central banking is just this purely technical, purely technocratic thing, uh, enterprise, is that it, it's false. As expert as she is, there are things that are just completely outside of her control. Sure. And she would, of course, admit this. And indeed, the most important things are outside of her control, outside of the Fed's control. And so I, I give her very high marks on... Uh, on the way that she's been engaging with the public, uh, although the last few months she's been been pretty quiet, frankly. Um, I give her very high marks in terms of her preparation navigating what is an unprecedented and um, uh, and uh, historically unique period. Uh, but the reality is we put too much confidence in, in our central bank. We, we assume that it is the the uber regulator of the entire global economy. Yeah. And uh, uh, while of course it's one of the, the major players, it's it's not it's not God. It's not the it's not the omniscient, omnipotent uh, power that some people suppose that it is. So then the jobs report, which obviously has been one of those things that that a lot of people have really watched closely, especially over the last couple of years. Uh, while the numbers are great to see them going higher, they don't really they don't tell the whole story anymore mm. uh, because there's so many things going on outside of our borders. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. Another thing we haven't even talked about is that the central bank, true to its name, is an institution that makes its policies through the banking system. Sure, right. And so the relationship between the central bank and and the and the banks is is essential. That's how that's how policy is effectuated. Problem is, is that the basic function of banking is intermediation between um, borrowers and lenders, savers and spenders, is happening all over our financial system outside of these banks. Yeah, this is the so-called shadow banking system. Yeah, and it's huge. So the question is, how does the Fed make its policies in a context where it hasn't raised interest rates into a shadow banking system that is the size that we have today? This has never been done before. Uh, so what's the rule book? Well, it's not been written. It's being written right now. <laughs> yeah. So so I have a, a great deal of sympathy for Janet Yellen and her colleagues on the Federal Open Market Committee and the Board of Governors. Um, as a, a financial historian, it's a delightful time to be watching <laughs> because, again, uh, there are there are so few precedents that we can point to and say, well, this has been done before and here's how it played out. Is it hard to even gauge what we might see in 2016 at this point because things seem to change almost on a, on a biweekly basis at this point? I mean, if you'd asked me in 2010 uh, or 2011, will we be at the zero lower bound in 2015? I would have thought, I just can't fathom that. That, yeah. that, that would be 
that'd be extraordinary. I think that everybody would have said the same thing. I think Bernanke and the Bernanke Fed, when they took it, took us down to the zero lower bound in 2008, after the fall of 2008, mm-hmm. uh, and and the calm uh, was was mostly restored in the financial system. I think the reason that Bernanke was talking about in 2010 liftoff was that this is nowhere where the the Fed or any central bank wants to be, and yet here we are. Um, so again, if we're if we're ringing in the new year at the end of 2016. I, I will be very surprised if we're still at zero percent. Yeah. But then we would look back and say, well, look, inflation hasn't budged. Uh, you know, the, these job numbers are still soft. There would be an explanation for doing it. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.